Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the latest episode. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, today we've got Paul Hall with us. Uh, he played for Chesterfield between 2005 and 2007, so just two seasons with us, but was pretty much an ever-present for both of those seasons. Top goal scorer in his first season and part of the uh, team that did so well in the Carling Cup in 2006. Um, started his career down in Torquay uh, and then had a great spell at Portsmouth which led to him uh, going to the uh, World Cup in 98 with Jamaica. Um, had some great stories of that era, uh, really fond memories of his time at Chesterfield too, uh, so it was great to have a chat to him. Uh, he's now the head coach of the under-23s at QPR um, and looking at going into management um, next up. So um, he had some really good thoughts on the game and it's great to see that he's doing so well uh, since he left Chesterfield all those years ago. Um, so yeah, please do subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already. We're also on uh, Twitter, at Spire Legends, and Facebook if you just search Legends of the Spire. Uh, so it'd be great to hear from you. Uh, plenty more episodes to come, but in the meantime, here is Paul Hall. Yeah, so thanks for coming on. We should start. No I always like yeah. to start at the beginning, really. Um, okay. In terms of how you ended up as in a career in football in the first place, because I'm guessing the time you started, it was probably more YTS than than kind of going through a structured youth system. But yeah. you were born up in Manchester, weren't you? But then started That's at Torquay. Right. So I'm just wondering yeah. how that all happened, how you ended up at Torquay. Well, yeah, it was it was the the kind of I, I was a kid that moved around a lot as a as a as a youngster. We moved from Manchester to Birmingham, back to Manchester, back to Birmingham. And it was that, that kind of uproaring. So that helped me later on in my life in changing rooms hmm. because I was able to just go into a new experience from a very, very young age. Yeah. Um, and I was playing Sunday League in Birmingham and there was a, a scout that was um, a Torquay scout who scouted Lee Sharp the, couple of, uh, the previous year. Hmm. And he's, he was quite big and, and he'd sold somebody to um, Manchester United, sold Lee Sharp to Man United. And so he just said, look, come down on trial. And I had, I had a lot of the other clubs, West Brom, uh, Warsaw and uh, Birmingham City. They were all, uh, had offered me YTS contracts. But um, I'd gone down there and it was, a, it was a, the, the thought process of my mum that I, I needed to grow and go and be a man mm-hmm. and get out of the area that I was kind of in. So when I went down there, it was I was a, a Birmingham City footballer down in playing in the fourth division. So I, I came through pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, you're training with the first team at 16 and 17, and then you're playing in the first team at that age as well. So it was really, a, a, you know, 18 months pr- previous, I'm, I'm at school, but then I'm playing in the in, in the fourth division, and it's um, a dream come true, really. Did you ever did you ever do any other jobs or apprenticeships apprenticeships around that time? Because various people that ended up doing bits of plumbing or or yeah. bits of training around that time. I assure you, I assure you, there's an away stand at Torquay, right? That we had to build. So <laughs> we had to do we had to do concreting, we had to do um, you know carrying sand, and for the first two weeks, I was a builder, and that's what it was. I was scrubbing down seats with iron filings I was painting I was doing everything before I could even get to kick a ball so all we were doing was doing that and then after we'd go running for five miles 
So I was thinking, is this what football, you know, professional football is? Yeah. Not and then, you know, yet. slowly, yeah, slowly they start to introduce the football and you start to uh, feel the leather, feel the leather, as they say. Yeah. And it's a lovely place in the world, isn't it, to to go if you're uh, starting a career in football. I imagine it's lovely being Yeah, there. I loved, I love my life down there and, and I expect Aaron and Michelle do. Mm. And I thought that uh, it's called the English Riviera for a reason. It's like you could be in France, in the, in, in the southern part of France, and, and not see any different. It's beautiful, the most picturesque city, I think, in the, in the country. And uh, there's, a lot, there's a reason why a lot of people flock down there to, to their holidays. Mm. And I expect it will have a, re, a, a revitalised energy because of, of, of uh, Brexit. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I was saying to Aaron, it's the, it's the away match that all the fans want on bank holiday. <laughs> if you get talking on a Tuesday night, that does, doesn't go down well. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's so far. And I mean, we used to have to, if you can imagine, we went up to Carlisle mm. on the day. I mean, that's, that's a, a trip that you have to navigate through the Midlands, through the bottleneck of the, of the M6, the M5, M6 interchange. And you could be sat in traffic for three or four hours of that. And sometimes we'd go, we'd leave three or four o'clock in the morning to get there for a three o'clock kickoff. So it wasn't, if, if I went down to Torquay, it wasn't for the glamorous side of football. It was for, to learn my trade and learn it in a, yeah. in a very difficult way. But it did, us, it did us good. There's some great players that come from that team. Yeah. And then you went, uh, and I want to talk about your years at Portsmouth, because that's where you really... Got your name, I suppose. You there from what ninety three to ninety eight, and then obviously that ended up with World Cup at the end of it. Yeah, I mean Portsmouth was a Portsmouth was what a football club. Honestly, it was the fans are just on a next level. They're just you could be four one down at home and they're still going and they're still going and they really drive you over the line. Anybody that goes there with the team, they better expect to be playing against twelve men because their crowd is really, I know it's a cliche, but their crowd really is a 12th man. And they really do, when, when they're at home, you, you feel the energy of the crowd and it's a one city club and they really, they really get after you and really make sure that you're not slacking, which is, is brilliant. And away teams that come, they make them feel hostile and it is a real one city club and they deserve the, the biggest club because they are a massive club. Yeah, and it's, it's teams like that that have really suffered with not having fans in the stadium, isn't it? When, when your atmosphere is a 12th man, you really notice when you can't have a crowd in. Of course. And again, they are a fantastically supported team. I mean, they, they, I remember them being in League Two with a full house, you know, a full crowd. I went down there and watched a couple of games and saw them get promotion. And like I say, they've got such a rivalry with Southampton and they really protect their football team. They really do protect them with, with all that they've got and support them as well. And, and that's, a, that's a club or a city that deserves a club in the Premier League. And who did you? Who were your kind of best mates or the players that you really liked playing with in, in your time at Portsmouth? Oh, my word. I, I was so lucky because I'd left Torquay, which was probably 1,500 people, 3,000 at, at max, mm. to go in front of 25,000 and playing in the playoffs for uh, the Premier League. So I was, I was in the changing rooms with internationals, uh, Paul Walsh, um, Mark Chamberlain, who's Oxlade, uh, Oxlade, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's dad, um, Alan McLaughlin, 
all these guys are internationals. Guy Whittingham, who went on to, to break records for goal scoring, Alan Knight, and so much players in there. Alan Ball, you know, Jim Smith, all these guys who had played and made such an impact on football when that I was now learning from. And it was such a great part of my learning experience to spend six years at a football club that was that was full of internationals and full of fruit. And I and I could only benefit from that. Yeah. And then and then yeah, like I like I said, at the end of your spell at Portsmouth is when you had the World Cup in, in ninety-eight and you got to you got to play in it. And I was having a look at the matches that you played in uh, just before we started talking. And you got uh you got um Argentina, Croatia, and Japan, didn't you, in, in the group? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like just picking out some of the players that you're playing against, <laughs> like Batistuta and Davos Suka and, and even Nakata and for Japan, who was who massive round. Veron. You yeah. had Veron. You had um who's the athletic Madrid manager now? Um yeah, Simeone. Oh. No. Yeah, Simeone. Simeone. I mean it was just littered. It was littered with them. Um Ortega. I mean the, the Croatia team who we played with. I mean, you don't know whether to mark them or get their autograph. You know, it was that. It was like that. But if I'm being honest with you, the Argentina game wasn't as awe-inspiring, even though we lost 5-0. It wasn't as awe-affected as the other games were because we were used to playing against those in the South American area. We played against Brazil twice that year um, and we'd lost 1-0 in the second game and drew 0-0 in the first. So we were really achieving some really good things with that team. And... In the World Cup, we, we truly expected a lot more than we delivered in that World Cup, even though it was against, I mean, Croatia, there was no disgrace. It was the group of life for them, but the group of death for us. Mm. And um, we managed to win one game, which a lot of teams go to the World Cup and managed to not manage to do. Uh, we beat Japan and uh, we had a great, a great, um, a, a great time. Did you did you come back with any, any mementos in terms of either swapped shirts or stealing... Yeah. Stealing towels from the hotel or, or something. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, uh, there's there's so many mementos. It was <laughs> it was silly. I mean, even little things that you collect from just your time there, souvenirs. Uh, yeah, I swapped shirts with a couple of players. I can't. In fact, I would have to go and look at them because I can't even remember who I swapped shirts with. But uh, I was the type of player to collect to to save my own shirt mm. because I had so many family members who wanted one of my shirts yeah. and they were like you, you, you need to give me one of your shirts man and I was thinking okay no problem I loads of people I've played 41 times but so many people wanted to top you know I've, I've probably got about two left so it's uh it was it was difficult but I yeah I was a fan of keeping my own jerseys uh, and not swapping them too many times because they're mementos of who you represented yeah and it was it was funny around then because it was probably what about five years before that that Cool Runnings was out. So, yeah. I mean, it almost felt like France '98 was was kind of like the sequel to Cool Runnings in in some way. In terms of you were like yeah. the underdog story uh, in that yeah. World Cup. And there's there's definite um, what can I say? There's definite comparisons to be drawn hmm. because people used to stop us in the airport and ask us if we were actually the you know what we do, and we said oh with the football team, and people would say. Oh, are you the Jamaican bobsled team? Like, no, we're the football team. And they'd say, which one of you guys is Sam? And we're thinking, oh, listen, we know that we've got the same colours on, but we're not the bobsled team. We're actually the football team. But it's difficult to look past Jamaica as a, a you know, other, other than athletics and music, you know, but there are there is a decent football team there. So mm -hmm. we, we, we did represent and we were the highest mover in FIFA at, at that point. And we did, we did 
a good job in the World Cup as well. So it was it was really good. Yeah, and you got a good forty, what forty one caps, something like that. So you did. Yeah, you did it. Played a lot. Forty one caps. Yeah, fifteen goals. So it was a it was a good return for the games that I, I played in. Yeah. So that's probably a goal every three games, something like that, just over a goal every three games. So it was good. And I scored some pretty important goals. I scored the goal that um, against uh, El Salvador uh, away from home. I'd scored a few, uh, and I'd scored a lot of goals for Jamaica in the Gold Cup as well. And finished in team of the tournament, playing up front with um, Romario and Edmundo. And it was such a, you know, you're, you're rubbing shoulders. You're on, you're, you're on the shoulders of giants there. So I, I thought that it was a good international career for me. 41 games. It could have been more, but um, I'll take that 41. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and then I wanted to mention before we go on to Chesterfield, which is obviously what we had to talk about, um, was your time at Rushton and Diamonds. Because um, people that, that are maybe too young to remember that, that time probably mm-hmm. have not even heard of Russian Diamonds because now, unfortunately, they're back down in the non-league That's again right. after kind of everything that happened with them. But at that time, they had a real rise, didn't they, um, through the leagues? And and you did you yeah. spend what two or three years there? I think. Uh, yeah, I think I spent about three years there. Left in two thousand and four, I think, mm-hmm. and it was really, really successful time. I mean, the the Dr. Martin's um, guy, Max. Max, oh, he'd, he'd kill me if I forgot his name as well. But let's just say Max. Um, he was the Dr. Martin's owner and he'd really ploughed some money into the football club. And it was such a, a great atmosphere around the club that you, you, were, you were encouraged to win and encouraged to be the top of your game. Max Griggs, you were the top of your game. And he made sure that you were the top of your game everything that you wanted for you received it at the football club you wanted for nothing but in return we gave him performances and we gave him results um in my first season we got to the playoffs in my second season we won the league and in my third season um, i ended up leaving to go to tranmere mm-hmm. but uh we were at that point we were eighth in the league and for a club that six thousand was the maximum amount of support in an area like Earthlingborough or Weddingborough, Northamptonshire, really punched above their weight. And every year in their 10-year history, they'd won something or got to the final of something. So it was really successful. And it was just a shame that it had to go because the history that Rushton and Diamonds had, it was a world with history, but it was good. And I've, I've reformed again, but it's just not the same. It's the first goal since mid-November for Martin Devaney, who started the previous match on the bench. His Hall. Can he replicate the goal? Oh! It's a better one! It's truly magnificent from Paul Hall! There haven't been many years at the Millennium Stadium, but I doubt there's been many better goals than that. Well, we saw in the playoffs last week, they do have the, the ability to uh, to hit back straight away. Nice little ball in by Mustafa, and then Hall really just opened up for him. Credit, he went through the tightest of spaces, but with his power and his little, and his pace. Yeah, and there's quite a lot of clubs. It's it's funny now in the in the league because it seems like we're in a time where a lot of clubs are going into the league, and a lot of kind of old big clubs um, are kind of dropping out the league. 
<coughs> Chesterfield included, but we'll be back pretty soon. Um, yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it, that you're getting, you're getting a bit of a swap at, at the moment mm. in terms of the old established order and these kind of new clubs that have got a bit of kind of a local yeah. businessman or, or finance behind them, isn't it? Mm. It is, and I mean, like you say, these these clubs that have that are dropping out with big names, they're sleeping, and it's only a matter of time before they get together because they've got the infrastructure to come back up, because they've got the expectancy of we playing against certain teams, we're supposed to beat them just based on name alone. I mean, that that can be used in a match. That can be used because a lot of these teams are playing their their cup finals when they're playing against your Chesterfields you know, and the big teams that are in that division at the moment. And it's in, it's important that those clubs wake back up. And when they do wake back up, because they're very attractive uh, to go and manage and to go and play for. And when they do, it's it's then a, re, a, a lease of life for the area and for the, you know, Chesterfield. I mean, Chesterfield itself is part of the, the area social fabric, isn't it? Mm. And so I really do believe if they can come back, they can come back very, very strong because they've got the infrastructure to do it. Yeah, and it's. I remember when uh, when we first went down to the non-league, it was a. I think it was a Tranmere fan because they'd just gone back up into the league again. Yeah, <laughs> kind of saying that it might be quite amusing for the first half of the season because you'll think, oh, we're going to, you know, Dover or somewhere like that, and you like you say, you expect to turn them over kind of seven nil or something, and it'll all be a bit of a laugh. Yeah, and it's only really at Christmas time when you've been beaten by a lot of these teams and they're actually kind of better than you. <laughs> yeah. you realise it's a, a long hard slog to get back into the league, mm. isn't it? It, I mean, it is. And, and like I say, I mean, um, Chesterfield's got a fan base. They really have got a fan base. And the one thing that history does teach you is, and I mean, you shouldn't expect it. But what you should do is understand that the, the giants that have come before you, it, that have worn that T-shirt and represented that badge before. And that should spur you on in games when times get difficult, because... Like I say, you put no disrespect to a Dover, but if Chesterfield are beating Dover and, and I'm playing, I'm expecting to beat them, regardless of when, whenever we play them, just based on history alone. And that drives you forward. That's why everybody wants to play for you, your Manchester United, your established teams, because you are part of that history and representing that history. So sometimes I feel that it needs to be, the picture needs to be painted in that way. Alan Ball said to the team once, you know, that... They, they don't go to war from Liverpool. They do from Portsmouth. And that is, you know, he sent his players out with a with a team talk. That was his team talk. Mm. So there is a, a certain connection that you need to make uh, with, with, with history and with the size of a football club and with, with what that club's been in the past that can drive your future. Yeah. And then, and then yeah, like you said, you, you had a season at... Um at Tranmere, didn't you, before coming mm. to Chesterfield. Um, yeah. And then you signed for us, yeah, in 2005 under Roy McFarland. So I'm just yeah. wondering how, how it all came about signing for Chesterfield. Okay, so I've had pretty, a pretty good season at, at Tranmere that year. And I'd wanted, all I wanted with Tranmere was to, to stay an extra, an extra year because I thought I deserved a couple of years on my contract. I was coming to the end of my career and I thought I deserved it. I was really performing well. I was, I think I was the second highest top uh, goal scorer at that point from from wide area. So I thought I'd done a good job. They didn't want to do that. And I thought, well, you know, I've done a good job. And then Chesterfield get on the phone. Roy McFarlane says, you know, oh, son. And then it was, it was, you know, you want to come and play for me? And at that point, I was happy at Tranmere. 
you know, I was really happy because we'd done really well. We just got to the playoffs and we should have got, we should have got to Wembley at least and, and won because we were the form team. We'd come third in that league at that point. And then uh, Roy just said, you know, come, come down here, you know, we'll, we'll give you two years if you want, if you want security. So I said, okay, no problems. Just wanted to, to see out my career really. So I went down there and then, you know, I'm in a changing room then again with your Wayne Allison's, um, your, your, your Shane Nicholson's, your Aaron Downs's and, and all these guys that are coming through. Just great changing rooms. You know, I've gone from a great changing room at Tranmere to a great changing room at, um, at, at, at Chesterfield from a great changing room at, at Rushton and Diamond. So it was just being part of that great changing room, which is really, really important. Yeah, because the facilities at Chesterfield obviously weren't that great around then. The, the training pitch, I'm guessing you were at yeah. Warminster Road there, was a bit... <laughs> uh, yeah, not, I mean, it, you, get, get to the, you have to report to the ground, then drive 20 miles to Warminster, and then 20 <laughs> miles back in the freezing cold. But you know what? Like I said, it was, it was about a changing room. Like, like I said, that was the oldest ground. It's where they filmed the, the Clough movie, wasn't it? Yeah, damn And it was, yeah. people just never used to want to come there and play. And even w when you looked at Chesterfield play at that point, we had a high press that we used to make the teams feel uncomfortable. And it was that that we concentrated on because we knew that we weren't the, the fancy team with all the facilities, but you don't need to do that. All you need is 11 men who were, focused and really pregnant about what they're doing and um and and we really tried to get after people and it was quite a good season that one yeah and it was a really interesting time then because Roy McFarland had this just kind of a, a, a quite a traditional 4-4-2 with you mm -hmm. you kind of you uh you're pretty strong fullbacks and and, and defense and then you'd have probably you and I think it was Kevin Hurst probably on the yeah the that's week. right yeah uh, right. Obviously, the Niven Allett combo in midfield, having your tackler and your passer, um, and then, like you mentioned, like Chief, Chief up front, and uh, Caleb Folan was around then as well. Um, it was. Did you? What was your favourite formation to play in? Did you like those kind of? Yeah, I, I liked it. I liked it because I mean, Roy allowed me the freedom to be able to to play football, so I wasn't just stuck out on the wing waiting for the ball to come to me, even though that's where I used to pop up. I was able to get in the middle of the park and cause problems and, and create and assist others. And again, we had some good, good football players. It was a real working class town and a real, and we represented that working class by the amount of work that we put in, in our performances. So it was, it was key that, you know, you, like you say, you had the, the Allet and the Nivens. I mean, th those two were tireless. And I mean, they both, I mean, Niven, I saw him score one of the best goals in, in the cup run that, we, that yeah. anybody at, um, at Saltergate has ever seen. But he could pass the ball as well. And Alec could dig. Like, so it was a nice compliment with each other. You had the two guys up front who were nightmares for, for the back four. And you had, like you say, Kevin Hurst was different to me. You know, he, he provided a lot more. I'd probably try and finish things off a lot more but I'd like to provide as well but, and we all complemented each other and that was key so 4-4-2 I, I, I really do believe that it's not formations that win your games it's the players in the formations that win you the games mm -hmm. and how they understand it and how they can go forward and, and implement what the manager wants because like I said I can't even remember who was captain because we had 11 captains on the pitch 
and we were all going for each other and that and that's key you know that's really really key yeah and i was wondered was was that always your position uh kind of on the wing i'm, I'm assuming you've probably played striker a bit over over your time as well have you well yeah for jamaica i play up front i play i played up front you know it's a long time ago now we're talking what 20 23 years ago but <laughs> for jamaica i played up front i mean uh because I was so versatile, I could play up front, on the wing, in the team. Because, you know, there's a point of trying to, you know, understanding the game as you get older. Um, on the wing, you do a lot, uh, in the 10 and the, the forward positions, you probably do a lot less running than you do on the wing. So, you, but you have to understand the game, how the game goes, which spaces open up, and how you can exploit those spaces for yourself and others. So it's really important that I understood the game and playing up front with Jamaica enabled me to be able to come and play up front or understand the game and change the game from the wing. That's yeah. why Roy McFarlane used to put us in a 4-4-2, but I'd often change that into a 4-3-3, yeah, just, just because the space was inside the pitch and I'd play inside the pitch. Yeah, and there was some good little... I was watching the 5-1 um, the, the against Millwall yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and like your first goal in that match, you you'd make that run inside and I think you have a one-two with Folan, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Finish it off. Um, and, that, and, that's what, and that's what Roy, sorry to cut you. No. But, um, and that's what Roy kind of instilled in us. You know, go and play. Go and, go and make those combinations in the attacking areas. Hmm. Um, I do believe that if, if, if Roy was in charge a little bit longer and kept the kind of the, the nucleus of the team, it could have built on to be something else, um, quite successful. But um, it was quite a new team. But like I said, it, you were allowed to come inside the pitch, allowed to formation as long as you knew what you were doing defensively. But then if I ran out of position, somebody would pick up for me defensively anyway. So it was, it was always an understanding hmm. from, the, from, the, from the back line and the midfield players. And, and they just allowed us to run forward and run free, really. But we did pay our bill we, we scored quite a few goals you know thrown into Hall Hall turns loses Moraes giving inside that's a good ball Hall Hall and he scores great interplay between Paul Hall and uh, Kellen Foran there yeah and I always think with um like with wide players, either fullbacks or, or wingers, um, you're closest to the crowd, aren't you? Which can be, yeah. <laughs> which can be a, a a good thing if you're having a good game, and it can be a bad yeah. thing if you're not. Um, 100%. Is that? Uh, do you think that the players that play in the middle, your centre midfielders and stuff, do you think they get get off a bit lightly sometimes, not being down the touchline? Well, listen, they say it's the hardest thing in the world is to play in the middle. That's what they say because it's it's three sixty, mm. and when you're playing with your back to the line you see the whole game so a goalkeeper can see the whole pitch a, a fullback and a wide man can see the whole pitch but a, a centre forward can only see three corner flags at one sorry a centre midfield player can only see three corner flags at one time and, that, and he has to turn his head so playing with the crowd behind you it can be you know you feel you feel them but they can drive you on as well I mean the Chesterfield like, used to drive me on hmm. take me past fullbacks like just from the roar they used to get when the ball used to get pinged out to me. They used to just literally drive you past these guys and used to want to, to please them. 
you know. So when you feel like you've got them behind you and they're and they're they're like you, it's it's only a matter of it, you know it's rising to the occasion. Some people obviously can't, but for me, it was a good thing. Hmm. Yeah, and um, like you scored on your home debut, I think. I think it was against Brentford. I think um, yeah, yeah. On your home debut, and then you went on to be top goal scorer that first season with us, didn't you? I think you got about fifteen, something like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Was that? Uh, I mean, that must have been nice. You, did you did you take the Mickey out of the other strikers a bit? <laughs> get the top, get the top dog. Yeah, I used to say to him, "Well, if you're not going to do your job, I'm going to have to do your job." <laughs> but listen, I, I saw it as uh, as a duty to score goals from midfield because if you concentrate on your strikers scoring so many goals all the time, then you know, yeah, I used to like to provide, but I see myself as scoring. If I can add to the goal tally then it helps to the, the overall goal tally in the, in, that the team needs to get to. And sometimes you become a, a game winner. Sometimes you become just, you know, assisting in, the, in a goal. And some, But every, all the time you need to stop goals. So you're either scoring, assisting or stopping goals in a match. And for me, scoring goals was really important. I scored goals at Tranmere, at Rushton, at Portsmouth. You know, the only place where I didn't really score any goals was Torquay. And I was really learning my trade at that point. And then I was just concentrating on providing. But then you, you the, the feeling that you get, you know, at Saltergate when you score a goal. And I mean, that the fans used to make lots of noise when you score and you could feel them driving you on. And so once you scored one goal, you want to carry on and score another one because it's a good feeling. So yeah. you just want to repeat that. And if you can find yourself into that area where you can score tappings, you can score goals from distance but keep putting yourself in that area then law of averages means that you can score or you can put yourself in a position to get chances did you have any um like tricks of the trade uh in terms of getting in the box coming unnoticed or anything like that did you have a tactic in terms of how to get in that space to score pin the far post always just pin the far post and and play quickly and decisively in the final third i mean i tell this to my players now be decisive, you know, in that final third. Just be decisive. Like, I don't mind, you know, make the keeper work and be decisive. So whatever that is, I mean, if you if you saw the, I think it might have been the first goal yesterday in, in the uh, in the Millwall game. Yeah. Like you say, I, I, I'm decisive in that in that action. What I'm doing, I know that I'm giving it to Caleb. Caleb's decisive in flicking it. He might have given it away, but we're playing decisively in that area. Mm. and we're playing like we want to break them down and then the defenders have got to destroy that and it's easier to destroy than it is to to invent but the ball falls to me because I gamble and then I'm decisive in the finish so it's always a point of making sure that we're you're decisive in the final third that's a trick of the trade and then pin the far post when Kevin Hurst is crossing it I'm making sure that I if Chief puts his head on it and the keeper doesn't hold it then I'm making sure that I'm trying to get a tap in and gambling, really. Yeah. He was so good at heading balls, wasn't he? I mean, it sounds a bit obvious, Wayne Allison yeah. good at heading balls, but he was yeah. one of those... Uh, with target men, sometimes they can head a ball, but not necessarily know where they're heading it, whereas yeah. he really knew where he was heading it. He always seemed to yeah. find someone or find the space, didn't he? he was... I always used to say, listen, Chief, we need to turn you upside down, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep the ball on the floor and turn you upside down if you're that good with your head. But he was that good, you know. He was he, he was such a good hold up player, um, 
very basic in what he did. And you, you could set your watch by him. You know, you, can, you just knew that he was going to set the ball back. I could time my runs based off him setting the ball back. And then Derek Niven or, or Mark Allett or Phil Picking, you know, they would play a third man run. And I just knew that I could, or, or Chief would just flick it on or buy you a foul. You know, he was so wise in, in his craft that uh, it was obvious when he, you know, he'd scored a lot of goals in his career and played a lot of games and you could see why he, he managed to stick around for so long. Yeah. And, and you were pretty good on your left foot as well, weren't you? Like as, a, as, as playing on the right, you were, you were good on your left foot. I think that second goal in the Millwall game was you kind of cut inside and, and curled it in. And yeah. I was looking at back at your Russian and, Russian and Diamond goals as well. And there was quite a few there where yeah. you were kind of cutting back on your left. Was that yeah. practice? Uh, uh, yeah, it's practice. But it's also the, the, the moment. It's like I say, it's being decisive. I mean, there's probably a thousand that you haven't seen. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, YouTube is is full, and Twitter and all those platforms are full of things where people are successful. But there's a lot of left-footed shots where you know I probably wounded somebody in the stands behind the goal, <laughs> or or hit the corner flag. So yeah, I mean, I was good on my left foot, but it was like I said, moments of decisiveness that felt right at the time, and it just flew off the boot, and you knew it was in the goal as as you as you were shaping up to score. So, yeah. Yeah, and I should mention as well, you had some good dance moves on you as well, didn't you, when you scored? <laughs> it was discotheque on the pitch. So we just had the, we used to say, man, listen, if you can't play, come off the dance floor. And so we just used to, you know, just try and dance every time. It was a happy feeling. And um, it, it was just, a, it was just a little bit of fun with the fans, really, you know, to just let them see, because they're, they're happy and when you score a goal, it's such a great feeling for everybody in the stadium that, um, you know, you just feel like dancing and I always dance after some of my celebrations, unless I was too tired to. So as I got older, I got really tired, but uh, yeah, it was, it was fun, it, fun scoring a goal. And like you say, I scored quite a few in my career and it was, it was fantastic. He's got Hall outside him. Hall with a bit of space. He's going to have a shot. He's going to have a shot. And he scores the fourth goal for Chesterfield. That's Hall's second goal. And a bit of dance there. <laughs> yeah, and I think you actually got your 100th uh, career league goal when you were playing for us. Against Jilly yeah. or someone like that. Yeah, and you, uh, you played nearly all the games, didn't you, the first season with us? I think you played like 44. Yeah. And I think you were a sub one yeah. game and, and missed out on another, but um, yeah, and I used to I used to play. I used to pride myself on playing forty six games a season. So when I didn't play, I was very very disappointed, and that was including the cup matches. Mm. You know, so there'd be more than forty six games. But as a season professional, I mean, I played all the season in the championship season with Rushton. I played forty six games in the championship seat in the uh, the playoff season. With Tramia, I played 46 games. And then coming into Chesterfield, I was a player that had played 46 games. And I remember saying that to Roy, where I'll play 46 games for you. And I think that's what he liked because I was always going to be there, win, lose or draw, and never be the one who's, you know, slight injury. I'm playing with half an injury sometimes, but I'm going to make sure that I'm available mm. to, to try and win these games and, and be there for, for any team that I play for. Yeah, and did that... Did that change because you were obviously playing for a good two decades or something? And 
obviously when you started your career you it was probably yeah. more of a uh you had your first 11 that was it and then it turned into probably a bit more of a squad game yeah. like it is now how did that change over yeah. the years um like i say i mean it's probably accepted by the players now that it's a squad game you know but for me even now i mean players that used to you, you play you'd, pr you'd pride yourself on playing 46 games so when you are having to miss out because of rotation, right? I'd be trying to outperform everybody because I'd want, I wouldn't be one of the ones who I wanted the manager to rotate. Mm. So I'd always be trying to play and trying to play well so that I was in a position to be, or, you know, scoring a goal or, in a, or setting one up or being in a position to influence the side so much that you were seen as being um, the first name on the team sheet. That was key. So it was never a, um, a squad game or outlook for myself. I always wanted to play. Um, nowadays, I would still want to play. And I feel sometimes some players will play two games in a week and then feel that they're tired. But me, I could play Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. No, I'm playing the next week as well. You know, you've got to get up and this is a... But it takes time to do that. And it takes... Nowadays, there's more pros in the building, so there's more choice for the manager. Yeah, yeah. And then we should mention it, really, but <laughs> the Carling Cup run. Uh, we've had yeah. Alan O'Hare on, and we've had Aaron Downs on podcast already, talking about yeah. how amazing it was. Um, but it was it was just great, wasn't it? Because every it wasn't a one-game a one wonder against one team. It kind of carried on match after match. It was great fun, wasn't it? It was, and I mean, like I said, it was. We had some great, a great changing room. That was what I put that down to. A great changing room. We used to come in. We used to really take the Mickey out of each other. In there, it was such a, a place. I mean, the the place was. It needed a lick of paint to say the the, uh, the least. Yeah. But you know, we come in the changing rooms, and everybody had their little positions, and we'd all, you know, go at each other. But when we went out on the pitch, it was about making sure that we went and achieved. And I, we played against some really good teams who we had no right to beat. Like I said to you earlier, it's, you know, if it was a history, if it was anything to do with history, those players, they would have beaten us hands down, mm. all the teams. But we didn't, we had our own history to kind of live up to because of the, the previous guys who had got to the semi-finals um, before. So we were like, no, let's no, let's let's put it on these guys. If they're going to beat us, then let them prove to us that they're better than us. Don't give it to them. Let them take it, and we ended up taking it off them. Yeah, and I, I imagine as well the, the the changing rooms not being in. I mean, especially the away changing room, which is even worse than the home one. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that didn't. Uh, as a player that played at a slightly higher level than Chesterfield, I imagine going to dressing rooms like that is. I don't know. It must be a bit of a shock to some of the higher higher earning it is, players. It is, but you know what? The, the, the size of the pitch is the same, and you have to you do have to go out. So it's about approach, and it's about attitude, and it's about desire. And you know, the the biggest marginal gain anybody can ever have in football is is in the it's in the head. You know, it's in the it, it's it's a sight box, and if you can sort that out, decision making, your commitment, your desire. Um, control if you can sort all those things out then you can have a good career but like I said the, the, the changing rooms I mean Torquay United their away dressing room is pink <laughs> yeah and so 
but the pitch is still green. The lines are still white. The sides of the goals are the same. There's an 18-yard box. And with all of that, you've still got to go out, no matter what the surroundings are like. You've still got to go out and you've still got to go and get a result. Mm. And we, especially in the cup runs, we did that. Yeah, and it was... Um... Did you have a favourite match from that cup run? Because there was like late goals in every match. So they, they all had their yeah. all had the drama. I think the Man City one, because I was born in Manchester. So that Man City game was good. But we had West Ham. We had Charlton. Charlton, yeah. And then yeah. Wolves as well earlier on. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it was good. And I think that's when Caleb Follin started to really come alive. Mm. And you saw the, the growth of a young man. And uh, we were really proud of him. And we just, you know, he was the kind of talisman at the time when it was chief. And he just kind of took over and he just really started opening his legs and becoming that player who we thought that he would be. Because I was at Rushton with him as well. Mm. Uh, he'd come through. And then, uh, you know, he, he, we, we became that team who nobody wanted to play in the, um, in the cup run. Uh, and yeah, I wanted to talk to you about your role in the dressing room because it was Aaron Downs that said to said to us that um, if we had a defeat, that you were the guy that would know what to say. You'd, you'd say the right thing, whether it was making a bit of a joke, not kind of underplaying the situation, but kind of relaxing <laughs> people a bit. Um, yeah. So what was your role in the dressing room? <laughs> well, you know, you're an experienced player at that point, you know, I, I'd, I'd been on cup runs before and I'd been in league, you know, I'd won a league a few seasons before and I'd gone to a playoffs before. And a lot of these matches that you play, you're playing over the course of 46 games. You know, you're starting a 50 game run, 52 game run, of which you're going to lose some games. And it's about not how you fall, it's about how, how much you bounce when you get back up. You know, and what attitude have you got when you get back up? And that was important because we had some good senior players in that changing room at the time. Um, but we had some young players as well. Adam Smiths, Jamie Jackson, um, Alex Bailey was a good player for us at that point. And it was just making sure that you just kept... It's about people, you know. Changing room, rooms football is just about people. And if you can affect people in the right way, they can run through brick walls for you and with you. And if you can manage to say the right things to them, just genuinely, you know, look, we're, in, we're, we're quite lucky people, you know, we're in, we're in a lucky job. Let's go. Let's not make, let's leave, you know, don't leave your legs in, in this changing room. Let's make sure that we, we, we don't let those fans down. You know, we're lucky boys. Different things that would be said that players would take notice of to make them feel better about losing or about drawing when we should have won, you know, but sometimes when we draw and we felt that we should have won, I'd just turn around and say something like, guys, that's a point in the right direction. Stop, stop dwelling on it. We can't fix it now. Let's, let's go into the next game. Let's make sure that we take the, we, we take the, you know, have a balanced view. And I think um, those type of players, those guys, um, appreciated that but they all were like that you know we were all like I said there was Roy had lots of captains in there and he picked well in terms of a squad yeah and and do you as because you joined us when you're about what, 33 something like that do you yeah, start yeah, yeah. to become a, a, like a link to the manager or do, do, yeah. are you still very much part yeah. of the you're obviously still part of the playing 
team, but you must start to become a little link to the manager in terms of looking after yeah. those younger pros and things like that. Yeah, especially. And I always try to, I've always tried to do that. When I first went to Portsmouth, the, the, the older players who looked after me, Alan McLaughlin, Paul Walsh, they just took me under their wing and started showing me the right things to do. And they didn't need to do that. So that stayed with me. And anybody, any young player that you'll probably see that I've played with um, will always say that I always tried to take them under my wing. Caleb Follin, um, Alex Bailey, uh, Adam Smith, Jamie. Always tried to lead them and because they were great players. These are good, good, good footballers. And just trying to take them under your wing and make sure that they're doing, doing some good with their careers. And I mean, of those guys, I mean, Alex Bailey was probably, he was really good. And, you know, you want, you want to see him go on to become that player that he has got, had the potential to be. Um, but yeah, you, you wanted to just look after these guys and make sure that you leave a legacy. And if you do leave, leave a legacy, it's a positive legacy so that they can say, wow, okay, and call your name, yeah. which was important. And was that when you started thinking... Uh, maybe about what you might be able to do after football in terms of coaching and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I w- I've always wanted to do coaching, and that at that point I was doing my uh, B license, B license, A license. So I wanted to do it. Um, and like you say, you're a link to the manager. The manager doesn't want to be in the change rooms all the time. You police your own space. Uh, make sure that the young lads are, are there on time. Make sure that the young lads are doing what we want them to do. And um, all these little things that you learn as a player over the space of 20 years you can take into your management mm-hmm. style so Roy McFarlane had a management style I always steal little bits from him I steal little bits from Alan Ball Terry Finnick um, Ivan Golak the list is endless Alan, you know lots of Gordon Strachan at, uh, you know lots of different managers that I've had in the past that um, it's really really important that you take that and you're, you're and at the end of your career if you want to become a coach then these guys have, have literally done the job and shown you you've got to, you've got to take the best of what they've got and try and marry it into your own style yeah and what was Roy Roy Mack like as a um as a boss in terms of his personality and stuff funny you know he was a funny guy because he'd always talk about his times at Derby um and you were just in awe of you know he's had a fantastic career um, and some of the just the little things I always find that you know Brian Small, all these guys. Um, sorry, Brian Little, Brian Small, same thing but different name. <laughs> um, I always used to say he always used to say little snippets of things that used to stay with you throughout your career. Mm. And you know, if you want to come off your shape, go on, go and play, go and go and lead, go and invent a goal. And you always say little things like that, and you feel the freedom to go and play. And you, ne- you never used to want to let him down. That's why I, I think at Chesterfield, I became a little bit of a perfectionist because you just didn't want to let him down because of the, 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 the faith that he showed in me to bring me in the first place and the fact that he'd allowed you to go and play 4-4-2, but, you know, change your shape if you want. And he wouldn't shout at me for doing it and it would result in something good for the attack for the football club and I, I, I really enjoyed the time underneath from there. Yeah. 
And who are the other players? Obviously, you mentioned Downsy that you still, uh, still yeah. close to. Were there other players around that around that time that you've kind of kept? Shane Nicholson, Caleb Folan, Alex Bailey, um, Mark Allett, Derek Niven, Wayne Allison. Um, you know, lots of different uh, players at the football club who were um, just just really good people, and it was such a nice change room to bit to be in. But we demanded from each other as well, which is key. Uh, I mean, we, you know, even in the season after where we didn't do so well, we, we were still demanding off each other. You know, the dynamic had changed a little bit, but we'd still was demanding off, demanding off, uh, from each other. Yeah, and in terms of a dressing room, like I've, I've spoken to a few other players about this, that some dressing rooms seem like they might be a bit more raucous, a bit more of a bantery squad. And some others yeah. might be a bit quieter in terms of personalities. I wondered what what the characteristics were around that time. Well, put it this way: if you went in there with any dodgy clothes or or anything like that, you were getting told about it. And um, we, we we weren't afraid to to get at each other, you know, and 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 really get at each other if if it wasn't going right. And and sometimes Roy wouldn't need to come in and do a team talk. Because we're doing it for each other, we're doing it for ourselves, which is really, really important. I've I've seen that disappear out the game. If I'm being honest, yeah. one of the changes. But uh, Roy was he'd leave it, leave us to it sometimes, or we'd come in and say, right, you need to be like this, Holly. You need to stay wide a little bit more, or some because sometimes you can. I could get really carried away with it and really try and be free. And sometimes you know you need you need the structure and you need discipline. So he'd only come in and say something if he really felt that it needed to be said. But he, he had a squad at one point that was, that was he could have remote controlled them from, from up in the stands. Yeah, and like I remember as a fan, you could kind of name the starting 11 <laughs> before yeah. it was even announced. It was yeah. like that, that solid. Um, and it, well, uh, you know what? That, that's the point. I mean, because when you can name a team, you don't need to, to rotate the team because... That's the team that you feel most comfortable with. I think when you start chopping and changing the squad and the, the team, what then happens from there is you get performances because people don't get the time to settle in, to suck the time, or the, the, you know they don't feel part of the, the team. But if you've got like a, a group of players who you know that's going to play week in week out, you at least know what you're getting from that squad. Who who were the really tough people in training? Because we've spoken to a few players that were like, oh, I had had scraps with him all the time in <laughs> training, and there must have been some tackles flying from certain people. In I tell you, the one person right, you wouldn't believe. Well, you probably would, but you wouldn't believe because he's such a quiet guy. Was Derek Niven? He was a tackler. He would run through a brick wall, and he was our cante. You know, he would he would. Just go and fetch the ball and give it to somebody. And, you know, he was such a nice guy with it. Um, Ruben Hazel, you know, wasn't afraid to put a tackle in. Uh, Aaron Downs wasn't afraid to put a tackle in. Janos Kovac, you know, all these guys were big guys. And um, the training sessions would really be full throttle. And we'd be right on it. Because uh, we knew that come Saturday, again, teams that are coming to coming to play against you are expecting to beat you because you are Chesterfield and they are who they are. Mm. But we were like, it's not going to be like that. So we had to make do with what we had, you know? Yeah. And then, and then, yeah, you, you played 
even in your second season with us, I think you played about 40 games in that in that second season. Was the and then obviously I think we got relegated that season and Roy McFarlane left. Um was there ever a was there ever a chance to stay on or was it was it a, no. like a change in the Yeah, there was not a chance to stay on. I mean Lee Richardson had come in, um it took took the reins at that point. I think um Alan Nill had come round at that point as well. I'm sure yeah. Um, and I think Chief might have been a coach at that point, but there was kind of like um, a change of the guard. You know, I was. It was said to me, "Look, you can. We'll look. We'll have a look at who we want to have a look at. You have a look at who you might have a look at, and you know, we'll come." But I just knew that he just didn't want to say to me, "We're not giving you another contract," and. And I actually wanted to actually sign another contract with Chesterfield because I, I did like the club. And uh, but I'd gone and I'd signed for Warsaw at that point um, in in League One. And it was it was crazy really because I'd signed for Warsaw in League One, but Chesterfield had got relegated, and I, and I actually wanted to stay with um, Chesterfield, but there was no chance to. So I'd moved on, and um, I still keep contacts. I still keep in contact with lots of the guys. And, and still remember Ches Vegas as being a a, a a great place to be. And throughout your career, obviously you've 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 played at a fair few clubs. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, did you ever? Did you always have a place that you called home, and then you kind of drove, travelled to and from, or did you move around the country as it went? Oh um, no! In terms of that, I, I've lived in just outside Birmingham. And so there was myself, Reuben Hazel, uh, Shane Nicholson, um, and a couple of others who would always all meet because we'd all come up from up and down the country. But that was my, ever since I'd played for Coventry, just outside Birmingham was my home mm. until, I, until I finished my career. It's interesting as well, you talked about the whole car school thing, because I've always wondered about this in that. How do you work it? Do, do you share it? Because there's certain players that will will live kind of halfway. So it, when it's their turn, do they have to come and pick you up? And then <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no way. Um, what you do is you get to a point where you meet. You all meet, so central to everybody. But the players who were living in, uh, I suppose, say say Shane Nicholson was living in Derby at that point. We would meet at Junction Twenty Eight. So we'd only have to go up three or four junctions, but that was okay because that extra 15, 20 miles each day would, would, would save you a lot of petrol and mileage on your car. So if you were coming from Birmingham, I'd probably meet Ruben in Birmingham and then we'd go. But I would always have the longest to drive. So I'd meet Ruben, stop at his house, leave my, house, my car at his house and then drive up. And then we'd all decide on whose turn it was. But the biggest problem was the rotor on whose turn it was once we got to Junction 28. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anyone at uh, really horrible times of the year in terms of weather and ice as well? I was just like, that's no, not my time on the rotor at the moment. <laughs> oh, listen, it, there was all types of all types of weathers. It was always cold because you're going up north. And, um, you know, you'd always have somebody that would fall asleep in the car. And Ruben Hazel would be able to argue with anybody. If he was on his own in the car, he'd find an argument. But uh, yeah, it was a great set of people, great car school. I imagine you're all having a McDonald's at motorway services <laughs> on a few way back. Well, no, it wasn't like that because <laughs> um, we'd always eat. We'd always eat at the club, which was 
there's like a sandwich place down at the bottom of the road. Linda's. And yeah. then, yeah, Linda's right. Okay, so <laughs> we go there and then we'd, we'd end up just getting on the road and then it was never, we was never anywhere where we could tempt ourselves with, with food or drink. We'd just get on the road and go. That's, that's good, because these are always things as football fans that you always wonder about. <laughs> that's good to yeah. clear that up. Mainly from the left side of the park, but Larkin, three for Chesterfield. He's got Hall to his left, and it's 4-1. Chesterfield walk through the City defence, and a huge, huge mountain to climb now for the home side. Well, it's Paul Hall's hat-trick as well. It was really good play by his strike partner, Larkin, who just broke clear and challenged Joseph, tried to get a foot in, but really just couldn't get anyone near it. And, and Hall, in the end, left with the simplest of tappings, unselfish play by Larkin. And, and really, Chesterfield looking good on the counter-attack in the second half of, of grabbed the goal, really, to, to completely take the game away altogether from City, you think? Yeah, so then, yeah, you had a big, long playing career, and then, and then you're obviously now into coaching. Uh, but I also want to mention you did the sports journalism course as well, which quite a lot of people do nowadays. Did, does, has that sports journalism course really come in handy in terms of coaching as well, in terms of how to... Well, in terms of what I want to do in, in my life, um, is, that's become a football manager. It's helped me to be able to understand what angle the media come at, come at and how to prepare for questions that the media give you. Uh, and how the media works. So it was a really good course because it gets you skilled in something after the, after the game. And I started my career at um, Chesterfield, my journalism career. And so I've got a degree in that. So it has come in handy. I did write some columns for Birmingham newspapers and I did have a few uh, spots on the radio stations. And so it's really come in handy because it's given you something else because after 20 years as a footballer, you're pretty unemployable. Nobody wants a good ex-footballer, you know, because that's no qualification at all, you know. For, for coaching, yes. But for anything else, you become pretty skill skill, skill absent. Mm. So you've, you've got to go and retrain yourself again, and that's why I retrained myself. Yeah, was it, was it quite tough around that time? Did you manage to hop into stuff straight away? Because I know you did a bit like Tamworth, didn't you? And... Mansfield, which we shouldn't mention. Yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, it was it was really tough because I became a school teacher. Well, I, I, I became a college tutor, and which really helped my coaching hmm. because teaching is what you're doing, and it helped me understand how people learn and how people don't learn and, and, and different things like that. So it gave me skills to to help me in my coaching, and I use them. I use them today. So, yeah, it was a real difficult time because coming out of football, I mean, I suppose I can only liken it to, to being in prison for 20 years. You come out and then you've got no skills. People don't want to employ you because of one reason or another. Um, you've got to then go and retrain and somebody's got to really take a chance on you. And I was going in, when I was going into uh, Tamworth, I was literally going in as a, as a voluntary coach. Mm. Um, and... Mansfield, I ended up getting a, a job and, and finishing my teaching career, but that put me on the coaching ladder. So it's it's very difficult to get in into coaching, but yeah, I mean, um, it's what I do today, and it's what it's the it's the greatest thing apart from playing. Yeah. So tell us where you are now. So you're at QPR now. What's your yeah your role there? 
So I'm the head coach of the under 23s. Uh, so I give the players basically to the first team. Um, I've, I've, I've helped, I've played my role in, in, in helping Ibire Eze get to uh, Crystal Palace, who's a really good talent. Uh, Ilias Chair. I mean, we've, we've, we've got well in excess of 25 players who've done in the last five years who have gone on to, to have careers. Sold players to West Brom, Everton, as I said, Crystal Palace, Swansea, who have come out of the, the, the programme. So it's really, really good that, that I can turn my hands to something and I actually enjoy it just as much as my playing career. It's a really, um, it's a really highly responsible, uh, tough role as well, isn't it? Because especially when we're in a, a period where a kind of depression amongst like younger footballers that might be let go and, and stuff is quite um, high profile at the moment. You, you've got a much yeah. responsibility, haven't you, to the, to the youngsters that are let go than you, than you have to the ones that go on and have great careers. So that's, that's hard yeah. for you being the mentor and kind of the father figure in some ways of a group of young men. And that's what you have to do. You have to get a connection. Football's all about connections and, and it's a people science. So you can't think that, you know, you're, you're literally dashing people's hopes when you're releasing people. And you're making people's drink dreams when you when you're signing people, so it is a responsibility. And I think the under 23s job is the is the the most difficult job in the whole club because you're dealing with so many people's emotions. You're dealing with players who the first team give you who they don't want. You're you're dealing with players who come up from the under 18s and the 23s who think that they should be in the first team. Then you're dealing with a lot of these emotions in one cooking pot and you have to manage them. It's helped me massively and it will help me in my first team career uh, to be able to deal with players and deal with situations um, of, of young people. But, you know, a, a 23s player, it's the hardest step you're going to make. It's probably the smallest step, but the most difficult step you're ever going to make. So you're creating players from the, for the future, but you've also got to set an environment where no matter how upset they are, they've still got to come in and do the work still got to come in and, and be part uh, of a team and, and want to individually better themselves and, and, and get better. Do they, do they, do clubs give you um, online learning and, and things like that in terms of how to broach the subject of releasing youngsters or, you know, kind of looking well, at people? Well, you, like co you cover these on your, on your A licenses. Um, I mean, I'm a pro license coach now. So, um, you cover it on these things, but you know, there's no hard, fast rule on how to deal with these things. I think it's respect. I think it's a lot of it is signposting. You you have to signpost a lot of players when you think that they're going, they're not going to make it. You have to almost prepare them so that it doesn't become as a shock. They can actually see that it's coming, but you've also got to throw everything at it so that they know that you've tried everything. So, for example, if, if a player or a person in life knows that you've got their best interests at heart, they're going to they're try for you because they know that you've been honest with them and that you've been uh, transparent and open. And that, that's the most important thing. And I think if you're not open, transparent and honest, that's when people can start falling into depression. Listen, they can start falling into depression anyway, even when they're open and honest. Yeah. But 
I feel that it can't come as a massive shock because that then becomes trauma. And that's when people start reacting negatively. Yeah. And, 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 and we help them as well. We help them when they leave the football club to try and find clubs that may not be as senior as ours or maybe more senior than ours. You know, they might not fit into our thing, but then go to go and play in Arsenal and, and be and, and be really effective. So it's about finding futures for these players. Yeah. Who's the next Paul Hall in the QPR Academy? Oof, <laughs> let me see. Um, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, to be fair. <laughs> but no, we've got, we've, got lot, we've got lots of players who it would be unfair to mention anybody and, and to, to single out anyone because they're like your children. Like you say, it's a father, father figure and they're like your children. You know, you've got different qualities in all of them and their strengths, they are top of their strength in all, all of what they do. From heading the ball to tackling to really being that little player who can get between lines. They've, they've all got a chance and if they apply themselves correctly then they can be they can have a, a kind of career that I had and better you know and even if they don't have the career that I've had that's no disgrace because um, I feel in my if I was to stop playing that or stop, if I was to stop my involvement in football I feel that I've had a decent career in football so and that was just because I had no right to be but I've got my head down and worked really hard, listened to the older players, listened to my coaches and, and done all right. And then, yeah, you mentioned that you might like to go into management. It's quite mm. a, uh, it's, it's not very stable <laughs> employment no. <laughs> all, the, no. all the time. Is there anything that, uh, you're probably a bit more, have a bit more stability maybe in a under 23s as the head there. <laughs> yes, you do. But, you know, you've got an itch that you need to scratch. Yeah. And you do need to, to, to scratch that itch and, and fulfil your ambitions. I don't think football is a stable, you know, football is a stable occupation. If, if I was to be a footballer, the amount of times people said to me, you have to have a career, to, you know, a, a, an opposite career to, to, to fall back on because one tackle could end it. And we all think it's not going to happen to me. Um, but without me trying it, I'm never going to know. So I, I want to be able to, be in football and walk away from football knowing that I've tried to become a manager and, and seeing how good I am, seeing how good, how far I'm, far off I am and see if I can really test myself. Mm-hmm. I've tested myself in every age group now from, from the young ones all the way up to the 23s. I've tested myself in the first team at Mansfield. We got to Wembley um, in the FA Trophy, I think it was. And so after that, I really do want to be you know, affecting things at first team, first team level. And I really do believe that I've done the training and studied and I'm a pro license coach now. So I really do believe that in my future, I, I, I hope to be a first team manager. Do you think things are changing a bit in terms of, um, in terms of management? Because obviously Chesterfield have gone for James Rowe now from, from Gloucester. And it was the first yeah. time in a while in which we've not had a manager that's kind of just felt like one of those managers that's on the merry-go-round of just, Getting, yeah, yeah, yeah. getting another job even though they've maybe not been that successful do you get the sense that things are changing or or is it uh, is it still the same old way um i feel that yeah we're still guilty of it's one of the only occupation or industries in the world where you can actually get sacked from one job and 
pop up a few weeks later in a job that's in a higher division with more pay and, you know, for being on the merry-go-round. So I think football is part about getting on the merry-go-round than it is anything else. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do believe that there's a new breed of coach and manager coming along. Uh, but, again, it's, it, it's about that. That is about the, 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 the decision makers who give jobs out. You know, I mean, they sometimes, if you want a new, fresh approach and you want to, you know, you go and get a young manager or go and get a young, a, a new, somebody with new open ideas instead of hiring the, the guy that's been fired from 10 jobs you know, because he's, he's, he's experienced, but he's, he's also experienced, you know, he's experienced in being in the job, but he's probably experienced in losing jobs as well. So I really do believe that the, the decision makers and the people who give jobs out could have a little bit more of an open view mm. about, you know, and take their club into the game's changing and, and so does our attitudes to employing people need to change. And if that's if you can do that, then you never know what you're going to get. But you, you do know that if you the tried and tested, every club's in turmoil, and every every manager when he goes into a job for the first time is inexperienced. It doesn't matter whether he's had ten jobs before in that particular job, he's going to be inexperienced with that group of players. So you can almost take a chance if that person has proven that that person can do the job. Then why not? You know, just just take a chance and. I think um, James Rowe at Chesterfield is is showing that he's he's getting the team into the upper echelons in the division, um, and he was worth taking a chance over. But probably the guys at Chesterfield would probably have never even thought about hiring somebody like that a few years ago. Um, and if he if he proves them right and gets them up and out of that division, then hopefully other people will take take kind of stock of that. And, and, and start doing it themselves. Yeah, I think it certainly opened a lot of eyes of, uh, of fans and things at Chesterfield, of, of mm. someone completely unknown. Uh, well, I hope we get to see you on the touchline at some point. If you're half as decent as a manager, then as a, you were as a player, then you, you'll, you'll do all right, I imagine. Well, yeah, well, I've learned. I mean, I've learned, to, I've learned how to coach. You know, I've, I've sharpened my axe, I've sharpened my tools, and I've really learned how to, to coach. I've got some great mentors at QPR, you know, I've been working under some great managers as a player and as a as a coach. So now we've got I've got some really good um, skills and learnings to draw on, mm. um, and, and libraries of memories to draw on, so that I can I can you know adapt them and, and, and apply them to my everyday work. And it's work because you know I've, I've we're very very high up in the in the scores of producing young talent so um, for first teams so I'm one step away yeah and and final question I just wondered if there was a I'm putting it on, on the spot a bit but was there a when you think back to your time at Chesterfield is there a certain yeah. kind of match or event or uh, just something about the club that you think about when you, you think about Chesterfield um there's loads really I mean like I say I remember, I mean, it's only since I saw that Millwall game yesterday mm. that I realised that when the fans are happy and it's a full ground, it can actually be a place that's rocking. 
and they really fans. You know, they 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 love they love exciting players. They love to to support their club, and they've got such a, a good fan base that the fans really are, are part of why um, I enjoyed my time there. Because when you're, you know, in the cup runs and when I was leading scorer one season and um, and we were winning games, it was fantastic. And they made you feel really welcome and really at home. So the fans are, are key, you know, and, and the people that work around the club as well. They all, they all, I mean, was it Jeff? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. yeah. I mean, when I scored up my hat-trick away at Bristol City, he awarded me with this, I mean, I've still got it now. It's a, this placard that, was such a, a lovely gesture and it was a, a real pleasure coming into train and, and working at Chesterfield and, and I'll always remember those times uh, fondly uh, at Chesterfield and you know it's a club that at that point when I was at Tranmere I, I never thought that I'd, I'd play for another club like that because the Tranmere fans were great as well but um, I've gone from one good club to another good club so it was it was really good.